Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and supplemented them with research into Greco-Roman history. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. A warning, this episode features violence, sexual content, discussions of consent, and animal cruelty. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Our planet is not the center of the universe. It's a celestial body spinning through space, the force of gravity keeping it in orbit around a ball of gas hundreds of thousands of times larger than itself. We know this is true thanks to centuries of scientific discovery, but our ancestors had no such assumptions. When they looked up at the sky at night with only their imaginations to guide them, they saw a dome, a canvas of sparkling patterns laid out by the gods, portraits of the great heroes and monsters that came before us. And thus, from Babylon to ancient Greece, we shaped our perception of the heavens through stories. Flash forward to the 21st century, and this primitive impulse has been refined into the practice of Western astrology. Instead of worshiping a pantheon of gods, we look for the traits within ourselves, within the signs our birth has assigned us to. For many, it's a way of defining your identity and your place in the universe. But what if your sign says things about you that you don't like? Can you change your nature? Or are you, like the hero in a Sophoclean tragedy, doomed before your story even begins? Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the second episode of our Summer Solstice Takeover. This week and next, we'll be digging into the myths behind the signs of the Western Zodiac with an extra episode each Thursday. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, Tales, Superstitions, and Mythical Monsters for more of the special. Today on Mythology, we're telling the myths behind Virgo, Libra, and Scorpio. These clusters of stars represent a maiden, a set of scales, and a scorpion. They share a unique relationship. Astrologers believe that there's a constant tension between Virgo and Scorpio, mediated by Libra. If you or someone you know was born under one of these signs, listen closely. You might find their personality reflected in myths written centuries before they were born. Up next, we'll hear the story behind Virgo. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
In our first episode, we looked at the constellation Leo the Lion. Adjacent to it is a cluster of stars that form a rough human shape, or more accurately, a stick figure. This is Virgo, the astrological sign for those born between August 23rd and September 22nd. Virgo, or Virgo in the original Latin, means virgin. But that doesn't mean people born under this sign are destined for a life of chastity. In the ancient world, virginity and maidenhood were closely linked to concepts of purity and harmony with nature. We can see this in the similar Latin word virga, which refers to a slender branch or a sprig, and virgatus, meaning made of twigs. Many goddesses are associated with this particular sign, but the story most commonly tied to it is that of Persephone, the daughter of Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. Hers is one of the most famous Greek myths. She was frolicking through the fields when Hades, god of the underworld, appeared before her. He kidnapped Persephone, took her to his realm, and made her queen of the dead. Not knowing what became of her daughter, Demeter fell into a deep sadness. Plants stopped growing. The air grew cold and inhospitable. Mortals all over the world began to die. For the sake of the human race, Persephone was returned to Demeter, but with one caveat. She would return to her husband in the underworld for six months out of the year. During those six months, grief would seize Demeter again, and the world would be plunged into winter. We've covered this story before on this show, but today we're going to pick it up in a part of Persephone's journey that is rarely explored, the time between her contract with Hades and her destined return to the underworld. The drought was over, and humanity could finally relax. At least, that's what Demeter said. And there had been a time when Persephone treated her mother's word as the only truth. But those days were long behind her. She had heard what Demeter had done to the earth while she was gone. There was joy in their reunion, but she could never look at her mother the same way again. And as the end of her visit drew near, she felt the air lose its warmth. It seemed like they were on the cusp of a cold front, just as horrible as the one Demeter had inflicted before. So, as they sat down for supper, Persephone broached the topic. So, Mother, what is it, Persephone? I've noticed the grain wasn't as verdant today. Is that so? Perhaps we need to re-examine our watering system. And there is a distinct chill in the air. It's probably nothing. Mother... What? Stop badgering me about these things. I'll look into it tomorrow. Eat your ambrosia. Persephone stared at her plate. Her mother could make her feel like a child with just a few words. It was infuriating. I'm going away soon. I think we should talk about it. What's there to talk about? Your fate has been determined. You will spend six months out of every year with the one who takes many guests. Hades, mother. His name is Hades. He's your son-in-law now. You should get used to saying his name. He does not deserve any such recognition from me, or you for that matter. Forcing my sweet flower to wilt in the dark. I will never call such a man family. 
He's not like you think. Once I got over the shock of his realm, he's quite charming, actually. He kidnapped you and tricked you into this bargain. Is that what you think? Say whatever you like, Persephone. You will never be at home with him. They have river spirits down below, too, and I have heard their whispers. No matter how hard you try to make this union work, the denizens of the underworld will never accept you as their queen. Do not forget that you are a child of the harvest, of life itself. <laughs> For a goddess of life, you certainly caused plenty of death in my absence. That is not fair. You cannot judge me for what I did in my grief. Can't I? I was in the underworld when you froze the crops. The river Styx flowed thick with starved corpses. I understand your grief, truly. But when I learned you were behind it, I felt responsible. What is done is done. I cannot raise the dead. I'm not talking about the dead. I'm worried about those still living, Mother. Like I said, I felt a chill in the air. Oh, we're back to the chills in the air. What is it you're driving at? I want you to promise me not to punish the mortals again for my disappearance. You really do have a low opinion of your mother. I love my mother. I just wish she would listen to me. I won't be unhappy in the underworld. You may not believe it, but Hades is a good husband. Oh, trust me, mother. I know what's best for my life. Only a month later, Persephone wrapped a cloak about her shoulders and prepared to descend. Before she left, she took Demeter's hands in hers and looked into her mother's eyes. It's only six months. Do you remember what I said? I do, and I have a request. Anything. Do not forget your own magic. You may be his wife, but you will always be my daughter. Demeter clasped Persephone's wrist, and a cluster of green stems snaked out of her fingers. They wrapped around her wrist, forming a small bracelet of flowers that would never wilt, even without the sun. Persephone hugged her mother tightly and then set off into the wilderness. She did not need a chariot to carry her to the underworld this time. She felt the pull deep in her chest, a pressure drawing her away from her old home to her new one. And so she walked. The air was cold and the grass was brittle. As she walked on, the earth became more barren. A tear traced its way down her cheek. She wished that Demeter would have taken her advice, but her mother was nature itself. Her emotions could not always be reined in. It was almost a relief when Persephone stepped out of the winter and into the empty dark of the underworld. It was a strange thing to admit, but Persephone felt comfortable below the earth in a way she hadn't up above. Before she was married, she'd felt like an extension of her mother. She had no domain of her own, no responsibilities. She was a child in all but appearance. But below, she had power, agency, and titles of her own. She would relish her newfound realm without any of the melancholy that came with her first visit. However, even the underworld contained beings who disapproved of Persephone's presence. Less than a month later, whispers reached her ears. There was no plant life to speak of in the underworld, 
but there were many rivers, and with rivers came naiads, river spirits like the ones who served her mother. Persephone heard what one of them had to say about her, and she was not happy. Persephone stood by Cocytus, the river of lamentation. Its dark waters flowed by, the wailing voices of a thousand broken hearts, and yet she found it peaceful. She often came here to think when she needed time alone for reflection, or when she had to exact punishment in a way her husband would not necessarily condone. Before her stood a naiad, And though she had been summoned by dread Persephone herself, she did not weep or look afraid. She held her head high in a challenge to the new queen of the underworld. Persephone admired that. I've heard of you, Minthi. You and your sisters talk about me when you think I cannot hear. When I'm above ground with my mother, I'm afraid you're mistaken. I always have ears here whether through my husband or through other means. Word always gets back to me. She stooped to the river and lowered her hand into its waters. It felt more like a current of bitingly cold air than real water. The flower bracelet her mother had woven around her wrist shifted, the colored petals taking on an unsettling hue. When she lifted her hand, it was dry. She turned back to the naiad. You think I am an outsider, someone to be scorned and mocked and discarded. The way they look at Zeus's mistresses on Olympus, perhaps. I'm afraid to disappoint. So when you said that you're more worthy of Hades than I ever could be, you could not be more mistaken. It's funny. My mother once told me that even down here, I have her magic in me. I used to wonder what that means. But after what you've said, I finally understand. Thank you. Persephone did not allow the naiad time to respond. She raised her hand, pointing one damning finger at Minthi. The naiad cried out in shock, but then her voice vanished entirely, strangled as her neck became a stem. Her hands shrank into tiny leaves. The river spirit dwindled down until she was no more than a mint plant. Persephone smiled. She had power that no other god could have, not even her immensely powerful husband. She could create life in the realm of the dead. The connection between Virgo and the myth of Persephone comes from the constellation's movement through the sky. To anyone in the northern hemisphere, Virgo appears above the horizon in spring, then starts to descend below the horizon in late fall. It can't be seen at all during winter and returns to the sky again come spring. The ancient Greeks believed that this dark period is when Persephone returned to her arranged marriage in the underworld, and her mother Demeter let grief and loneliness overcome her duties as goddess of the harvest. Persephone is an enigmatic figure in most of her myths, but it's not hard to imagine her fitting the personality profile of a Virgo. Virgos can be nurturing and kind, but above all, they are independent. They're logical, practical, and grounded, 
often gravitating towards perfectionism. She has both a connection to the warmth of spring as well as the cold calculation of the underworld, a kingdom she rules over with ominous efficiency. But Persephone isn't the only figure associated with this constellation. There's another goddess who can lay claim to the title of the Maiden. But to tell her story, we must venture into our next sign. Up next, we'll explore Libra and the myth of the first murder. Now back to the story. Our next sign is one of the hardest to spot in the Northern Hemisphere, not because its stars are dimmer, but because it's so small. This is the constellation Libra, governing those born between September 23rd and October 22nd. It's the only inanimate object in the Western Zodiac. It consists of only four formally named stars, forming a strange quadrangle with dangling lines off either end. To the eyes of someone like Ptolemy, it looked like a pair of scales. This symbol, miraculously, has held the same meaning for people even after millennia of societal growth and development. You've probably already guessed that it stands for justice. The story closely associated with these scales is the myth of Astraea, a relatively obscure goddess in the Greek and Roman canons. Her tale is at the center of a key catastrophe that occurred near the dawn of human civilization. It began when the titan Prometheus stole fire from the gods and brought it to humankind. The sacred gift transformed human civilization, but it came at a great cost. Zeus had Prometheus chained to a rock where he was tortured by an eagle that tore out his liver each day. But humanity received an arguably worse fate. Zeus did not take back the fire. Instead, he gave humanity a new gift, a jar full of sin and evil. It was given to a woman named Pandora, along with the instructions never to open it. But Zeus knew that above all else, humans were curious. It was only a matter of time before the jar was opened and the mortal realm changed forever. Astraea sat by the fire, humming gently to her children. Supper had been simple, but they still polished it off like it was the finest feast they had ever eaten. She smiled at the roundness of her youngest son's cheeks, the way her older boy's hair always stuck up no matter her attempts to flatten it. Her heart was full. The mortals were simple, true, but they'd taught her that there was more to life than decadence and power. Her family on Olympus was too busy raising tempests and hurling thunderbolts to ever understand the simple pleasures of life, like the satisfaction of sitting by the fire after a long day of work. And as someone who had thrown lightning bolts and sat peacefully by the fire, Astraea definitely preferred the latter. Her divine family could have all the violence and war they wanted. She would stay with the peaceful humans. Since Prometheus had brought flames to the humans, even the cold of night could not deter her from her humble life on the earth. Her husband joined them presently, bringing another few logs in from the cold. He was ignorant of her divine origin. 
and that's how she liked it. Unlike her family, she did not want to be worshipped. Love was enough for her. Did you have a chance to look at the fields today? <sighs> yes. I've cut out as much of the blight as I can, but it's hard to say it won't keep spreading. Just... Just what? It seems this blight isn't affecting all farmers equally. The other day I saw Demophon at the market and his crops looked as bountiful as ever. More so even. Oh, relax, my love. Don't fixate on someone else's crops. It won't solve anything. Of course, you're right. And Demophon is a good friend. It's just that... Every time I look at how well his farm is doing, I get this strange feeling in my gut. I cannot explain it. What you need is sleep. Come now, let's all go to bed. You'll feel more normal in the morning. Astraya was troubled by her husband's admission. She had seen jealousy before when she lived on Olympus, but never amongst mortals. And when she fell asleep that night, her dreams were dark and chaotic. In them, she was holding a clay jar in her hands. There was a voice in her head telling her to just take a peek inside. What harm could that possibly do? She tried to resist, but she didn't seem to be in control of her own body. There was nothing Astraya could do but watch as her fingers slipped beneath the lid of the jar and pried it open. A cloud of ink black rolled out of the jar. It enveloped Astraya in an instant, and the dream dissolved into a chorus of voices, screams and wails and mirthless laughter. <gasps> Astraya jolted awake. She was lying in bed in her family's hut. It had just been a nightmare, but something was wrong. A figure was sitting by the window, a lithe woman with a bow across her knees and her hair tied back. Hello, sister. Oh, Artemis, what brings you here? Sometimes I go hunting at night. Is that so strange? Yes, it has been years since I've seen anyone from Olympus. Even my own kin ignore me. Gods are busy, what can I say? Do I embarrass you so much? Me? No. Zeus? Probably. We don't talk much. To what do I owe the pleasure? I came here with a warning. This idyllic life you've carved out for yourself is about to come to an end. If Zeus comes near my family... Oh, it won't be at his hand. Not directly, at least. <sighs> the gods are abandoning the Earth. Even those like you who like the mortals are withdrawing. If you wait to learn why... It'll be too late. Does it have anything to do with a jar full of darkness? So you've seen it too. Zeus took issue with Prometheus giving the humans fire, so he sent something to punish them. A jar of evils in the hands of a foolish girl. He told her not to open it, but you saw in your dream how that turned out. What did she release? You'll see soon enough. Just know that this realm is going to change forever. Come with me. Leave the humans to their fate. 
I'll make that decision for myself, thank you, sister. It's easy for you to retreat into the wilds. You don't have children to abandon. You're right. I also don't have a husband to abandon me in the middle of the night. At this strange comment, Astraya looked to where her husband should be lying. He was gone. She looked back to find that Artemis had also vanished, leaving her strange warning hovering in the air. Then a different sound took its place, a commotion from outside. Orange lights flickered in her window, torches. Checking to make sure that her children were safely asleep, she threw on her tunic and slipped out the door. All the adults in their village seemed to have awakened. They were gathered in a field not far from her hut. Astraya slipped in amongst the crowd, working her way toward the center. There was a space at the center of the press of bodies, and in that space was a man, lying on his back in the dirt. His chest was bare and split open with a multitude of bloody cuts and slashes. The sight was too horrible for many of the assembled to even look directly at it. But Astraya, who had seen the violence of Olympus and Mount Othrys before it, found the gore chillingly familiar. What happened? Whose body is this? It's Dimophon. Astraya turned to see her husband standing beside her. There were deep circles under his eyes, and he looked just as fearful as every man in the group. She threw her arms around him in relief. I heard the shouts, but I didn't want to wake you. What happened to him? We don't know. I think it was some sort of wild animal attack. But none of the body was eaten. It looks like a man did this. Astraya, don't talk madness. Such a thing is unthinkable. Let's go back home. The children will be up soon with all this noise. We don't want them to see. You're right. Let's go. And so, Astraya and her husband returned home, leaving their deceased neighbor to the care of the crowd. As the weeks wore on, Demophon's strange demise did not fade in the minds of the townspeople. They had never seen anything like this happen before. Only Astraya knew what murder was, but to mention it would only invite suspicion for herself and her family. Demophon's family packed their things and moved, allowing Astraya's family to take over their farm. Her husband relished the prospect and got to work with renewed vigor. To him, at least, the death of the poor, unfortunate Demophon was just a distant pain. But the more time passed since the death, the more Astraya's fears seemed to be coming true. Demophon's death had changed the village. Fights broke out between neighbors. Curses were thrown. No one seemed to trust each other anymore. So it was one fateful fall night that Astraya took her husband aside. I need to speak with you. What is bothering you, my love? I'm afraid that my time here must end. I've enjoyed my life in this village more than I could have dreamed, but I cannot stay. Everything has changed too much. What are you talking about? What's changed? The only thing that's changed is our fortunes. For the better. The village has changed since Demophon's death, and so have you, husband. Demophon? That's what this is about? 
He has been dead for months. You told me yourself. Every time you looked at that man's crops, you got a strange feeling in your gut. I know what that feeling is called. Jealousy. It is one of the sins Zeus released on this world. It is what drove you to kill him. Now you're talking madness. You killed Demophon and expected everyone else not to recognize your crime. Rightly so, since no human has ever committed murder before. Mortals were supposed to be free of it. And all of our faults. You say that like you're not one of us. I'm not. I am older than your oldest ancestor, and I will live beyond the horizon of your imagination. So tell me again that you did not kill Demophon. Astraea and her husband looked each other in the eyes, neither budging. Slowly, a smile formed on the man's face. It was not malicious or cruel. It was proud. Look around us. Our crops are thriving. Our children are well-fed. And all because of what I did. You admit to this crime? I saw an opportunity for a better life, and I took it. Just think of what this could mean. A man does not need to be limited by the circumstances of his birth ever again. Should I be less than a king because he was given more power? Or a hero because he was given more strength? No! And I will not be less than them because I have the courage to take what I want! And Demophon? Demophon was a good and generous man. He will be happy in the afterlife. Spare no more thoughts for him and be happy for our family. That would be against my nature. I thought I was drawn here by the innocence of mortals, but I think I always knew that it could not last forever. Every child must grow up, and every mortal must learn what justice is. Astraea whistled sharply through her teeth. Before her husband could react, several men appeared at their door and seized him. Fear filled his eyes. What's the meaning of this? What are you going to do with me? I will do nothing. The people will put you on trial for your crimes, and when their verdict has been passed, I will go back to the heavens. What about our children? Every action has consequences. You chose their fate when you murdered Demophon. Wait! Wait! The men dragged Astraea's husband away. He screamed and protested the whole way, but there was no hope for him. The villagers had overheard his confession and were determined to stop his vile ideas from spreading. He was put to death that very night, an execution so complete that even his name is absent from this telling. But that was not the end of the violence. The evil spirits from Pandora's jar were already spreading across the earth, infecting every mortal soul. Soon, there would be more Demophons and more killers like Astraea's husband. For the rest of their time on Earth, humanity would know greed, envy, malice, and many more sins. But they would not forget Astraea's lesson. When she left Earth, Astraea ascended to the stars and became a constellation, a reminder of the time before humanity was abandoned by the gods and a reminder that from now on, they would have to make their own justice.
In some versions of her myth, it's Astraea who winds up becoming the constellation Virgo, not Persephone. So why is it that she's most associated with the scales of Libra? Perhaps it's because of the association between these two signs. Astraea appears only briefly in classical mythology and is connected with both justice and innocence. She lives with humanity throughout the Golden Age until humans grow too violent for her liking and then retreats to the sky, becoming the last god to do so. As her story shows us, justice requires both the purity of innocence and the strength to weed out corruption. And this is why today's three signs are so intimately connected to each other. To be a Libra is to understand both Persephone's journey into darkness and Astraea's determination to remain noble. In Western astrology, Libras are classic mediators. They strive for balance in their lives and often have to take into account multiple perspectives before making a decision. They're in danger of indecisiveness, but unlike Geminis, these indecisions come from a desire to optimize everything in their lives. Evolved Libras have the potential to become great leaders and champions for justice. Their skill at mediation is especially crucial in maintaining the balance between Virgos and the next sign on our list. Coming up, one of the Zodiac's most striking signs is born from a monster. Now back to the story. Not far from Libra is a bright constellation with a long, curved tail ending in what looks like a deadly stinger. This is the constellation Scorpius, Latin for scorpion. Its astrological sign is called Scorpio, and it governs the calendar from October 23rd to November 21st. Like the Nemean lion from our last episode, Scorpio was a monster in Greco-Roman mythology, but unlike that lion, it was brought forth for a very specific purpose. You may even say its purpose was heroic. It comes at the tail end of a legendary hero's journey, that of a hunter who grew so successful that he could stand shoulder to shoulder with a goddess. The hunt always began early. The chariot of Helios had just begun its trip across the sky when the woman's feet touched the earth. She slipped through the underbrush like a shadow, with barely a rustling of grass to betray her movement. She was one with the forest that concealed her, a hunter of timeless patience and endless elegance. And her prey would never see her coming. She stopped and pulled back her bowstring, aiming into the woods. The boar was barely visible through a gap in the trees, a one in a thousand shot for even the best mortal archer. But for Artemis, goddess of the hunt, it was a warm-up. She released and watched her arrow arc through the trees only to spin wildly off course as another arrow struck it from the side. Artemis blinked in surprise, and then she saw where the arrow had come from and swore to herself, One day I will tire of your showing off, Orion. 
A man emerged from behind a nearby tree, bow clutched in his hands. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and wore his hunting tunic askew across his chest. This was Orion, greatest of all mortal hunters. Sounds like someone got up on the wrong side of the altar this morning. I did not expect you to be up at all after last night. Once again, you underestimate me at your own peril. Or the woman you took to bed last night overestimated you. What was her name? Filione, I think. Philandra? Phil something. I'm sure she had her fill of you. You wound me, Artemis. I left her sleeping peacefully after a long night of- Yes, I get it. I do not require a ballad recounting your feats of the night. That's not a bad idea. Someone should write that. I'd call it Orion and his spear. Subtle. What of you, Lady of the Moon? Made any recruits for your all-women hunting party? That is none of your business. Very well. What prey are we hunting today? Shall it be a towering monster or some wily beast? How about this? I show you the tracks and you tell me what sort of creature we're hunting. Orion grinned at the challenge, and the two hunters went to work. Try as she might, the annoyance Artemis felt at Orion slid away as the day went on. He was a braggart, but unlike most men, usually lived up to his boasts. And, crucially, he'd never attempted to seduce Artemis, which endeared him to her more than she'd like to admit. Besides her brother Apollo, he was probably the closest thing she had to a male friend. There was nothing quite like hunting with someone whose skills came close to matching your own. Even her mother Leto grudgingly admitted this. And Orion was charming after a fashion. That evening, Orion somehow managed to rope Artemis into a party with some of the most celebrated youths in Crete. Artemis sat at the edge of the crowd for most of the night, wishing she could be in the woods with her mother and their followers. Artemis was more comfortable among those women than any of these intoxicated youngsters. Orion gathered them to him like a king holding court. He told them in hushed tones of the day's hunt, certain to show deference to Artemis's skill, but the real star of the show was Orion. There isn't a single beast that isn't a match for either of us, eh, Artemis? I wouldn't tempt the fates like that, Orion. You know how they can be. <laughs> They've already done horrible things to me, my divine friend. I've paid for my passions in more ways than even you could know. I will be the greatest hunter of all time! Present company excluded, of course. What else is there to accomplish? You're already better than any mortal. I will do something that no hunter has ever done. I will hunt every creature on Earth. And then the muses will say, Orion was the best and last of all the hunters of Greece. You're drunk. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just ambitious. Artemis sat back, shaking her head. Everyone around her was fawning over him. The boys wanted to be him. The girls wanted to be with him. He was loved and adored and blessed. And he ate it all up. 
She took leave of him and vanished into the woods. Something about his comments bothered her. She knew relatively little about her hunting companion besides his skill and arrogance. She'd always thought of the latter as a harmless, if grating, character trait. But was it? Was there a monster lurking beneath his charming exterior? After interacting with no men besides her brother Apollo and their father Zeus, would she really know a good man from a bad one? She put the thought aside and returned to her mother. He deserved no more of her attention. She was the goddess of the hunt, not the hunters. Her friend was a distraction, nothing more. What felt like weeks later, Artemis found herself back in the wilderness of Crete. Alone this time with neither Orion nor her huntresses to accompany her, it was supposed to be a peaceful night, but that thought was ruined by a scream echoing through the trees. Artemis knew the sound of a woman in distress when she heard one. She knocked an arrow and made for the scream as quickly as she could. Whatever was terrorizing that woman would regret causing trouble tonight. Before long, she arrived at a clearing where a woman was fleeing, limping toward the tree line. Artemis recognized her. It was Opis, one of her followers, but not dressed in her hunting clothes. She wore a torn tunic the sort you'd expect at a city gathering. And then Artemis saw who was chasing her. Must you scream so loud? There's no one around to hear you. Just you, me, and the romantic moon. And who's the goddess of the moon, Orion? Orion looked up a split second before her arrow caught him in the thigh. Then he was the one screaming as Opis disappeared into the tree line. Oh, you really... Oh, that stings. Artemis, I haven't seen you in a while. Too long, I see. You've forgotten yourself in my absence. What do you mean? Oh, her. Listen, I can explain. My followers are not for your conquest, Orion. I thought you were decent enough to know that. You of all people should understand, Artemis. There's no thrill quite like chasing a forbidden quarry. I don't know you. Please. We know each other better than anyone. We're both hunters, after all. Look, that's how you see it. Perhaps it's time for another challenge. Now? But my leg! I'll let it recover. Then, you hunt the greatest monster I can whip up for you. And we see if you really are as great a hunter as you say you are. Artemis felt sick to her stomach. It was her duty to protect these women, and she had brought a predator into their midst. Orion couldn't atone for this kind of betrayal. He had to be punished. And as he recovered, she would work to create a beast that even Orion would have difficulty slaying. For his part, Orion healed rapidly. He didn't lie back and succumb to self-pity. He would win Artemis's favor back without fail. She was a goddess, but she was also a woman. And like all women, she was fickle. 
Was what he had done any worse than things her brother had done in the name of passion? Of course not. She would grow to see this. And in the meantime, he would prove himself by slaying this vicious beast she'd prepared for him. Only when he arrived at the beast's lair, he found no monster. There was only a maiden standing at the center of the cave. A sheer garment was the only thing between him and the softness of her skin. Who might you be? I was told there's a vicious monster in this cave. Are you the man who said he could best even the most fearsome of beasts? The very same. And who might you be? I am Scorpio. The mysterious woman let her garment fall to the floor. Orion gripped his spear tightly. His eyes darted left and right, seeking his prey, even as the woman reached out to wrap her arms around him. Where is, is the monster? My poor, sweet Orion. I am the monster. She grabbed him by the shoulders, and her hands were no longer gentle, feminine hands. They had become enormous black pincers that dug into his flesh. A segmented black tail rose from behind her, and her body collapsed into that of an enormous scorpion. Twisting his spear hand, Orion pried himself loose of the claws and dove away, trying to put distance between himself and the horrible arachnid. And then he saw Artemis in the mouth of the cave, a cold smile on her lips. He gritted his teeth and turned to face the monster. Its stinger lashed out once, twice, three times. Each time he managed to block the creature's venomous tail with his spear. His body grew slick with sweat. He would not fall to this trap. He was Orion, greatest of all the hunters. He blocked the stinger again, but took his eyes off of the claws. Orion's scream was heard from the other end of Crete. The stinger struck again, and this time it hit its target. Orion fell to the ground, twitching and writhing from the venom coursing through his veins. The scorpion lunged at the fallen hunter, ready to tear him limb from limb, but Artemis waved it off. You have done enough, my friend. This predator will not hunt again. She watched as Orion's jerking movement slowed and the light faded from his eyes. Then Artemis turned and left the cave, ready to continue her hunt alone. Orion is one of the clearest constellations in the sky, most easily seen through the three stars that form his belt. But he is not on the zodiac. That honor is reserved for the monster that killed him. If Virgos are intelligent and processing, Scorpios turn similar intelligence toward strategy. Their symbol is a scorpion, a creature whose real danger is not in its pincers, but in its tail, poised to strike at just the right moment. Scorpios are known for being goal-oriented, confident, and focused. 
They know what they want and go after it without hesitation. In the version of the story we told, Scorpios are more like Artemis than Orion. More so than any other woman in the Greek pantheon, she knew what she wanted and did not allow anyone to get in her way. But Artemis isn't a natural Scorpio for another reason. Scorpio is known as the most sexual of the signs, often associated with a need for closeness and intimacy on top of their nature as chess masters. Artemis, on the other hand, is often seen as a goddess of chastity or even asexuality due to her lack of romantic partners. The sole exception is her brief hunting partner, Orion, who in some versions of the myth wins her heart before his death. In other retellings, this is just a fast friendship formed by their mutual interests. This latter reading is more compatible with contemporary queer readings of Artemis's character. Whether you see yourself in the stories of Artemis, Astraea, Persephone, or none of them, their myths contain timeless lessons about the nature of justice, and they reflect some of the personality types that make up the rich tapestry of humankind. So when you look up to the sky and see a maiden weighing the scales and a hunter battling a scorpion, know that even in millennia of human history, some things never change. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back next Tuesday with the next installment of our Summer Solstice. Join us as we delve into the ancient stories behind Sagittarius, Capricorn, and Aquarius. These signs are a centaur, a sea goat, and a cupbearer. As always, you can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. If you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast, which gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. We'll be back Tuesday with another epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Julian Smith, Laura Faye Smith, and Jen Wong. I'm Vanessa Richardson.